Take your Bible and look with me in Psalm 100. Steve read the psalm earlier today. You also have it in your bulletin, Psalm 100. It is the only psalm of the 150 psalms that has the title, A Psalm of Thanksgiving. Some would say a psalm that was to accompany the thank offering uh, amongst uh, the Israelites. For me, it's a psalm of what I call thankful and evangelistic worship. It is not only about gratitude, it is a call to the nations to worship the one true God. Listen to our psalm this morning again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I imagine that I memorized this psalm as a child, even before I knew Christ as my Savior. I grew up in a home where you memorized a lot of scripture. And uh, as a believer, this psalm has encouraged me many, many times. But as I thought about this psalm and looked over my files over the years, I have never preached on Psalm 100. And so I looked at it again. I read it in English. I read it in Hebrew. Uh, I looked at the structure. I thought about the poetry. And my heart, again, was blessed to think of uh, the simplicity and yet the depth of this song. One of the opening phrases of the psalm lets us know that this is a psalm for all the earth. Yeah, a thousand years before Christ, the psalmist is telling us that there's something wrong with the postmodern world we live in. It doesn't mention postmodernism, but if you know anything about the governing philosophies of the world in which we live, postmodernism is one that influences the thinking of many people. And at the heart of postmodernism is the idea that all religious belief is culturally created. That there is no transcendent truth. There is no God who is beyond this world, who is a God for every people in all places, but that, you know, people believe what they do because of where they were located, who their parents were, and their religious beliefs were sort of created out of the culture. And that's the prevailing belief today among philosophers, that there is no transcendent truth for all people in all places in all times. And yet the psalmist in his 
opening phrase tells us that this is a call, not just for the people of Israel, God's chosen covenant people in the Old Testament. It's not just for the people of Israel. This is a call for all the earth, all people in all places at all times are called to worship this God who is called the Lord, the covenant God, the self-existent God. He is the one Lord, one Savior for all people in all times, in all places, and one day everyone, either willingly because they've been converted or by coercion because Christ rules with a rod of iron, one day everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a great psalm of thanksgiving, but as I said, it's not only a psalm that expresses the joy of the people of God, it is an evangelistic psalm. It's calling the nations of the world to join in the praise of this loving God, this faithful redeemer God. As I've looked at the psalm, there are different approaches to the sort of arrangement, the poetry of the psalm, but I'll give you what I think is the arrangement of the psalm. We begin with three commands. Make a joyful noise. Serve. Come. And then that's followed by a reason or an explanation in verse 3. Why do this? Know that the Lord is God. And then we have three more commands in verse 4. Enter, give thanks, bless. And then that is followed again by a reason explanation in verse 5. Because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. It's a psalm that calls us to be a thankful people, but to be an evangelistic people, to invite the world to enjoy what we have. But in order for us to do that, there are two things, only two things I want you to understand from this psalm. I want us to understand the basis of our thankfulness and our evangelism. And then I want us to see the behavior of it, what it looks like, how it works out both internally and externally in our lives. If we will be a thankful and evangelistic people, then first of all, we must know the basis of that. And it's simply this, from verse 3, know that the Lord is God. And verse 5, the Lord is good. The psalmist is telling us that the basis of our thanksgiving and the basis of our evangelism is knowing that the Lord is God and the Lord is good. Now those are simple truths, but they are powerful truths. 
Again, verses 3 and 5, focus on these. Verse 3, he is God. Verse 5, he is good. And these are the truths that underlie our thanksgiving and our, our evangelism. When I think of them, even in their simplicity, I smile. I love that simple song we sing. He is a good, good father. Just the fact that God is good makes me smile because I've met mean people and I have probably been a mean person at times. But God is always good, never anything other but good. And the psalmist explains in verse 3 what it means for him when he says that the Lord is God. He is God. Note again the names that he uses to describe God. Yahweh. I think in French they use the word eternal. And uh, in Spanish they use the word Señor. El Señor es Dios. The Lord is God. In English, we distinguish, we use the same word when we, there's two different words for Lord, but when we're talking about the covenant God, in English, it's always capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is what they technically call the tetragrammaton. You don't have to remember that. But that's what theologians call it. It simply means it's the four-letter name for God. We have lots of four-letter words in our language. Most of them are bad. But this four-letter name for God was so sacred that they never even pronounced it. We, we, we use Yahweh to, to, uh, to uh, speak of those four letters. But it's the name by which God created man. When you read Genesis 1, God creates the world. It's always God who creates the world, Elohim, who's creating the physical world. But when he comes to man, it's the Lord Elohim. It's this personal, covenant, self-existing God who is creating man. And he wants us to know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses by that name. When Moses said, when, when they asked who, who sent me, what should I say? And God said, tell them I am. Yahweh has sent you. The God who is. The God who is self-existent and eternal. This Yahweh, the psalmist wants us to know, is not only the personal covenant God of Israel. This Yahweh is God. He's Elohim. He is that transcendent God of power, the creator and sovereign ruler of the world. He is God. And the call of verse 3 is know him. He's not talking about acquiring the intellectual fact that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is Elohim, the creator, God of the world. Though that's necessary, you must know that. 
But the word is deeper than that. It's a call not only to learn the truth about who the Lord is, it's a call to discern it, to observe it, to ponder it, to recognize it. It's as Peter would say, keep growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't just know the truth, but treasure the truth and delight in that truth. Know this. Let this fact about God fill your heart and mind and soul so that it's impacting you in some way. And note the reason why we should give ourselves to knowing this powerful covenant-making God. He says, it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And as I understand these poetic lines here, normally you have A, B, A, B, where the second line is expressed expanding on the first line. It is he who made us and we are his. But I under, as I understand this, the A lines, it is he who made us, we are his people, that that line is explaining what, it mean, what does it mean he made us? When Israelites cry out, God made us, what are they saying? Because God made all humanity. But he doesn't use the Hebrew word that's used in, matter of fact, there's two Hebrew words used in Genesis that describe the creation of man, bara and yitzah. But here he uses a totally different word. And I don't think he's talking about that God physically created us as Israelites. He's talking about the, the new creation. He's talking about the redemption from, from Egypt and bringing them to Mount Sinai where God makes covenant with them. And he says, you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests to the entire world. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so that line, we are his people, is actually explaining what he means when he says, it is he who made us. If you read your Bible carefully and try to make mental connections between the Old and the New Testament, you begin to see that Many of the words that God spoke to Israel as his particular chosen people of the Old Covenant, the New Testament writers take them and now say that the church, which is made of Jew and Gentile, the church now has this special place before God that we are his chosen people. When God brought Israel out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and was going to make covenant with them and give them his law, listen to what our text says. It says in, in Exodus 19, it says, Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, 
Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then Peter in the New Testament, when he's writing to believers that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, he lifts out of Exodus 19 that language. And he says, I want to remind you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into was marvelous light. Once he said, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The psalmist is saying, come and know this God. Know what he's done for us as people. He made us. He made us a new creation. We are his people. What a privilege that is. But the second reason we belong to him. We are his, he says. And that's paralleled by we are the sheep of his pasture. What does it mean to belong to this living God. This, the psalmist is telling us it means that this living God, he's not just the self-existent Yahweh. He's not just Elohim, the creator of the world. He is one who takes you into his care and he shepherds you. We are the sheep of his pasture. And like a good shepherd, he leads us to cool water to satisfy the thirst of our soul and he leads us to green pasture so, so that we don't have to live hungry. We can live satisfied in this world. The consequence of the calling and creation of the people of God is that we belong to him and we are shepherded by him. We are his. We are the sheep of his pasture. I've always found it striking when I go to a funeral home and get the little card that they give you that 90% of the time that card is going to have Psalm 23 on it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we, we know that wonderful psalm. But I always find it striking because... The Lord is only the shepherd of his people. Jesus said, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There are many who died and had that written on their card only to find out that they stand before a holy judge, not a shepherd. They stand before an offended God, not a shepherd. 
Yes, I can say the Lord is my shepherd because I love the words of Jesus Christ. I follow him. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The basis of our thanksgiving is that we know that Jesus Christ is God and we belong to him. We've been created new in him as his people and he is our shepherd, a shepherd that loves us so much. The good shepherd, he said, that lays down his life for his sheep. But not only does the psalmist want us to know that the Lord is God, he wants us to know that he is good. Verse 5. For the Lord is good. Come and enter and give thanks and bless. Why should I do that? Because the Lord is good. He can't help but be good. Because that's his nature. He can't be anything but good. Because this is who God is. I love the way that Craig Beale describes it. He says the person and the works of God are good. He is good in his generosity. He is good in his kindness to all creation. It is unconditional love in Christ coming to die for sinners. He is good. And in his saving and special love to his elect people, he is good. He's good in giving sinners what they do not deserve and in not giving them what they do deserve. He is good. God alone is good. He goes on to say that apart from God, good has no meaning. That anything that is good must be defined first by who God is and what he says is good. And we know that we are warned that if we call what God says is good evil and call what is evil good, then there is a curse from God upon us. God is good. He can't help but be good. But he describes that goodness. He says his goodness is seen in his affection toward us. His steadfast love, that great Hebrew word that translators use multiple words to try to bring out all of the nuances of Kesev. This steadfast, unconditional love of God, this merciful love of God, it endures forever. It's demonstrated at the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. This is the steadfast love of God. It's experienced every day of our life. As Paul said, nothing can ever separate us from this steadfast love of God. Not even death. Because when you die as a believer, you wake up in the presence of a God who is good and whose love 
still continues through all eternity. His goodness is seen in his affection toward us. And his goodness is seen in his actions toward us. His faithfulness to all generations. It doesn't matter whether it's today or tomorrow, whether it's your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren, if they know Jesus Christ and they know that the Lord is God and know that he's good, then they will experience a steadfast, reliable, trustworthy God that is there through every instance, every circumstance of life. God is always good. His love is always constant. His faithfulness is reliable. Some of you may have grown up with a, a mean father. Maybe he wasn't a believer, maybe he was a believer, but maybe he wasn't walking with the Lord. Maybe you had the kind of dad who came home every day and he just couldn't handle all of the hyperactivity of kids. And so he retreated, like men do, to his newspaper or to his garage or maybe to the local bar. He was grumpy. He was selfish. He was impatient. He was unfair. And maybe you were the kind of kid who were glad one day when you could get out of that house and go to college or get a place of your own because you had a mean dad. And psychologists will tell you that that is where you got your image of God. Now, it may be true that that is where you got your image of God. But if you let that be your image of God, that's your fault. Because no father presents the true image of who God is. The best of fathers has their failures, their disappointments, we don't get our image of God from our fathers. We get our image of God from God who reveals himself in his word and reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that Jesus can say, whoever has seen me has seen the father. If you know Jesus, then you know what a true father is all about. And when you know this father, you will always say, he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generation. God is good even when your father is bad. God is good when your finances are bad. God is good when life is tough. God is good when you're suffering and your body is racked with pain. He's good when you are betrayed. He's good when you are abandoned. He's good when death is knocking at your door. God is good. In your loneliness, you must know the God who is good. And in your crying and tears, you must know that there is a God who is always good. And your suffering and your despair and your defeat, 
There is no circumstance of life, no disappointment, no heartache that changes the reality that God is good. Always good. Always loving his children. Always faithful to his people. I don't know about you, but I don't really like being around moody people. You know, you have to sort of tiptoe around them. You have to be careful what you say because they might be in that mood where it just ticks them off. You got to be careful about how you respond to what they say because if you don't respond the way they expect you to respond, then, you know, they're going to lash out at you. I don't like I don't like being around moody people, but you have to be. And uh, you got to be graceful. They're, they're what we call EGR people. Extra grace required. And uh, sometimes we are all EGR people. But you know, God is never moody. You can know that whatever you've done... Wherever you've been, however you feel, however far you have run and gone astray, however deeply you have fallen, that when you come to God with a humble and repentant heart, you will always find a God who is good. So if that is true, if the Lord is God and the Lord is good, what should our behavior be? How should we respond because of this great God? And he talks about the behavior of thanksgiving and of evangelistic worship in two ways, internally and externally. He tells us just by the language that he he uses that a life that has come to grips with who God is, is is a life that is filled with deep and happy emotion about this God. I mean, just look at his words, joyfulness and gladness and thanksgiving and praise. I mean, when I read this, I'm just the opening line. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All the earth, all the lands, make a joyful noise. It's language in the Hebrew Bible that's normally celebrating a military victory, a great conquest. And the king is returning triumphant with his armies and with the the goods that they have taken and with the, the captives that they had. And the crowds are lining the city walls and city streets. And as they come in triumph, the shout rises up, make a joyful noise. The story is told of a Brahmin, one of the higher castes of, in India, who came to the gospel and was baptized as a disciple and a believer. 
And when he was baptized, because in many places, just saying you're a Christian means nothing, but getting baptized may mean your death, because that is the mark that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So when he was baptized, he lost his houses, his fields, his wells, his wife, his children. And when he was asked, how do you bear your sorrows? He replied, I am often asked that, but I'm never asked how I bear my joys. For I have joy within that nothing can interfere with. The Lord Jesus sought me, found me. I was a poor, lost sheep in the jungle and he brought me into his fold and he will never leave me. Don't ask me about my sorrows because whatever they are, they're temporary. But ask me about my joys that are real and eternal in Jesus Christ. I have a joy within that no one, no circumstance of life can interfere with, he said. And that's the way we should be when we think of God's grace and God's saving power. There should be in our soul this joyful shout of victory, a heart that's full of gladness, thanksgiving, and praise. I love the song we began with. When I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and turned me around, how he set my feet on solid ground, that makes me want to shout, hallelujah! It's okay to shout hallelujah. Yeah. Hallelujah. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory, of all the honor, of all the praise. That makes me want to shout hallelujah. Commentators debate a little bit over this victory shout. Whether it's a shout that anticipates a future victory or a shout that celebrates one that has already occurred. But for me, it's easy to resolve because as a believer in Christ, it's both. I shout hallelujah because the cross and the resurrection have accomplished the victory over sin and death and Satan. And so it is a shout of celebration. But I also look to that time when Christ who now stands on the threshold of heaven ready to return, when he comes in power and glory in victory, I shout knowing that that will happen, that consummate victory will happen. 
We live with hearts of praise and thanksgiving because we know what God has done. We are confident that he will complete the good work that he has begun in us. And so we shout. Before his conversion, John Wesley was sort of moved by a conversation that he had with a porter at the college that he was attending. And the man was a poor man. He only had one coat. He didn't have much to eat. And yet he was always overflowing with gratitude toward God. And one day Wesley says to him, you thank God when you have nothing to wear, nothing to eat, and no bed to lie on. What else do you thank him for? He was sort of mocking him. He answered, I thank him that he has given me my life and my being and a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. I thank him because he made me his child. He redeemed me. I shall. Hallelujah. That is why our hearts should meditate on the cross, meditate on the open grave, meditate on the coming of Jesus Christ so that we can be stirred with emotions of joy and gladness so that we can sing within all the time that he has saved me and changed me and forgiven me and loved me and chosen me and secured me and satisfied me. Filled with emotion. And then all of those actions of thanksgiving. Making that joyful noise and serving the Lord and coming and entering and blessing his name. These are all evangelistic invitations, actions. They constitute a call to all the earth. Come and join in in what I'm experiencing. We are invited to do. We invite others to do what we ourselves are experiencing in Christ. We shout for joy over his victory. We serve him with gladness. We come into his presence with joy. We enter his gates to worship him with hearts full of praise. We bless his name for he is good. That's who we are. And as John Piper said... God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified when I'm glad in him, when I'm joyful in him, when I sing to him, when I bless his name, when I love him. He is glorified, and when my heart is full of that joy, then my lips will be full of his praise. My face will demonstrate that. One of the great missionaries of the past was Adoniram Judson, a missionary to Burma. When he went to Burma, 
He wanted so badly to preach the gospel to the people there, but he had to learn the language. And it took him a while to be able to communicate with people. So one day he walked up to a Burman and he simply wrapped his arms around him and embraced him. And he was later told that that man went home. And he reported that he had seen an angel. That Christ was so radiant in Adoniram Judson's countenance that people began to call him Mr. Gloryface. Now you've been called grumpy and miserable. But he was called glory face because he knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ had become his greatest treasure, his deepest delight, and it just exuded out of him. A simple psalm moving us to be thankful because the Lord, he's God of this entire world, the sovereign creator of the world, and he's good. His love, it'll never fail you. His faithfulness, never fail you. We should become a thankful and evangelistic people because our hearts are grounded in a deep relationship with this God who loves us and is always faithful to us. Our hearts should be so full that we are calling the nations, make a joyful noise, come near and know who he is. And once you know who he is, come in, enter the gates, enter the courts and worship him. Because there's nothing in this world or the world to come like knowing the one true God. Let's pray together this morning. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, it may be this morning that you know about this God, but you really don't know him. And if you don't know him, then your heart's not filled with delight and peace and comfort in knowing that he's forgiven you and you belong to him. But you can know him this morning. Right where you sit, you can tell God that you repent. And you believe that Jesus Christ died in your place and rose again. And today, you surrender to him. And this God becomes your shepherd to walk with you, not only through life, but through all eternity. And I pray that you will do that this morning. And as a believer... You think about a lot of things that disturb you and steal your joy and make your life miserable. 
because your circumstances overwhelm you. And this text is calling us back to know the God who saved us, to know that he is good, and to believe that, and to love him for that, and to meditate on that, so that our hearts are filled with gladness, and our faces are filled with glory, and our mouths are filled with praise. Father, thank you for your saving grace. Thank you for your extraordinary kindness. We thank you, Father, that you are good. Forgive us for letting our circumstances cause us to forget who you really are and what you've done. Bring us to repentance and to a renewed commitment to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.